I was uh, I was involved in a lot of these culture wars, campus wars in the late 1980s, early 1990s at uh, at Stanford University. Uh, it, you know, I started one of these alternative conservative newspapers, um, and you know a lot a lot of these debates had they had the quality of these uh, various crazy campus hijinks that uh, then at the same time occasionally would escalate into things that might be of some larger or even cosmic importance. One of the one of the Stanford debates that uh, that uh, really got uh, was was pivotal in the late 1980s involved a debate around the core uh, Western civilization class, Western culture. It was a protest in 1987 uh, where uh, the, the, the chant at the protest was, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western culture's got to go. And it was in one sense about this uh, year-long freshman class. You know, on another level, of course, it was about a repudiation of the, of the entire civilization that was being studied in that class, something somewhat more cosmic. And then, you know, um, I covered a lot of these things, and then a friend and I ended up writing a book, The Diversity Myth, um, a few years later. And I'll, I'll start by reading an excerpt from that, and then I want to give a little bit of a sort of retrospective of, you know, where I was right, where I was wrong, where I was not even wrong. Um, and so we, you know, we, uh, one, of the, one of the books that replaced Shakespeare was a book by M.A. Césaire, A Tempest, replaces The Tempest. And it's all sort of this uh, inverted anti-colonial hierarchy where Caliban is a revolutionary hero, Prospero is an evil colonialist. And so uh, the, uh, the final indignant trade by uh, Caliban in A Tempest. Understand what I say, Prospero. For years I bowed my head, for years I took it, all of it. Your insults, your ingratitude, and worst of all, more degrading than all the rest, your condescension. But now it's over. Over, do you hear? Of course, at the moment, you're still stronger than I am. But I don't give a damn for your power or for your dogs or your police or your inventions. And do you know why? It's because I know I'll get you. And you lied to me so much about the world, about yourself, that you ended up by imposing it on me, an image of myself, underdeveloped in your words, incompetent. That's how you made me see myself, and I loathe that image, and it's false. Um, and I know that one day my bare fist, just that, will be enough to crush your world. The old world is falling apart. And by the way, you have a chance to get it over with. You can fuck off. You can go back to Europe, but in a pig's eye you will. I'm sure you won't leave. You make me laugh with your mission, your vocation. Your vocation is to give me shit. And that's why you'll stay, just like those guys who founded the colonies and who now can't live anywhere else. You're just an old colonial addict. That's what you are. And, uh, and then, you know, this, this goes on for 250 pages where we go through things like this. Um, and, uh, and sort of the, uh, you know, the somewhat pretentious idea that, uh, David and I had in writing this book was we were speaking truth to power, that all that it took was to, to sort of expose this. And then you could ask questions. Well, is this, uh, is this new, uh, is this an improved version of Shakespeare or, if, or should one prefer the original? Um, is this really about multiculturalism and non-Western cultures, or is it just all sort of an anti-Western uh, thing that, that drives it? Um, and, uh, and, you know, and then there were parts of it that, that felt a little bit contrived at the time where, uh, you know, we had, we had to somehow make it relevant to the larger thing. And so we had, we had this sort of uh, somewhat contrived construction where ideas have consequences and what happens in the university will eventually, uh, will, will eventually spread beyond it. And then, of course, when you fast forward 30 years, there, there are all these ways, you know, a lot of this is, 
held up quite well. And of course, there also are ways where um, it feels like it didn't matter at all. And so, um, you know, I don't know, I, I, can, I, can, I, can, I can brag that the book was prophetic and that a lot of it came true. And then uh, I can say that, uh, that somehow the, all this effort in, in writing this seemingly did not really matter. And that on some level, it was not about the logic of the ideas at all. And, uh, and what I want to, you know, re reflect about is, uh, and so even though I think the specific arguments I would still defend is, you know, almost all right. Um, I want to focus maybe a little bit more self-critically on the places where I was not even wrong, where, um, you know, in some ways I, you know, I didn't, I even, I didn't even understand what the real issues were and uh, think about a little bit what, what, what those were. And, um, I think one, one piece of the book that has held up relatively well is the title, The Diversity Myth. It's an ambiguous title. It can mean on the one, you can put the stress on the word diversity, in which case um, you can then have debates of, you know, what does diversity mean? And if it is some sort of celebration of difference, and then you can sort of debate what kinds of diversity should one have? And then there are all sorts of libertarian and conservative critiques where, you know, you don't have real diversity if you have a group of people who look different but think alike. Um, you know, diversity in that sense probably should involve more than just hiring the extras from the space cantina scene in Star Wars or something like that. Um, but, but, there's a, but there's a secondary, maybe somewhat deeper meaning of the title where you put the stress on the word myth. And uh, if you put the stress on the word myth, you realize that uh, diversity it, or multiculturalism or, or any of these words are extremely poorly defined. And that's the point. They're not supposed to be defined. They're, they're sort of a, it's, it's sort of like a false god, idol, shibboleth. Um, um, but it's, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it can never be, uh, be, be really defined. And it works maybe mostly as a sort of diversion or di divertissement, a distraction from the things that are truly important. And it is kind of like a, I don't know, it's a hypnotic magic show where you don't notice the gorilla jumping up and down the back of the stage. You're just narrowly focused on what the, the tricks the magician is doing. Um, and, uh, and that, uh, and I want to, I want to, uh, what I want to try to explore with you tonight is a map of the things that we've been distracted from by focusing too much on wokeness, anti-wokeness, all these kinds of debates. What, what were we missing? Uh, so three, three main ones I, I, I'm going to go through in my brief comments tonight. You know, the, 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 uh, the first one broadly as a category is if, um, and this, this would be a libertarian critique of diversity, it would also be a Marxist critique, is that, uh, is that when you focus on all these uh, forms of identity politics, you're not focused enough on economics. When you focus on, you know, race, gender, et cetera, you're not going to focus enough on class. And so I think there is, you know, uh, and there is, even though I'm not a, not a communist or a Marxist, um, I find that even the Marxist critique probably has quite a bit to it, where if you had a, you know, what, what would be a Marxist analysis of a um, diversity administrator? And if you had Karl Marx or Rosa Luxemburg here, I think they would, they would suggest that these people are roughly in the same category as a bank robber or a prostitute because they're sort of a, it's a form of crony capitalism. 
It's sort of a reactionary class that's somehow taking advantage of, of the system. And, um, and then if we actually sort of look at the history of this, where, you know, in some ways, cultural Marxism replaced real Marxism, you know, in the 1970s, it roughly at least correlates with the period when, you know, inequality grew massively, when, um, the economy started to stagnate. And, um, and so when we, when we stopped thinking about the economy, there are sort of various perspectives from both the left or right economics perspective where something there uh, ceased to work all that all that well and uh, and then of course even you know economics is, is sort of somehow in a libertarian or Marxist form it grounds you into into um, substantive material type things um, but maybe the, the the sort of libertarian Marxist synthesis that I would want to explore a little bit more is the Henry George uh, the uh, the late 19th century economist who in the late 19th century was seen as pretty socialist. Today, he's seen as pretty libertarian, which I think doesn't re simply reflect sort of the way in which our society has changed. But uh, from uh, the Henry George perspective, the economic relation that one always needed to look at was land ownership, real estate, distortions in real estate. And this is the, the key driver. And I, I want to submit that if there is an area of economics that uh, we, we should pay more attention to, it is it is something like that, that there's something about a Georgist analysis of, of real estate that is extremely suggestive of, uh, of some very crazy things that have happened in the last uh, 50 years in our society. Um, um, one, of the, one of the numbers I've seen on this, and if you look at real estate in London, it has an inelasticity of minus two, which means that if you were to increase the supply of housing by 1%, the average price would go down 2%. And if you multiply you know, 1.01 by 0.98, you get a smaller number. And this leads to the paradoxical result that the more housing you build in London, the less it is collectively worth. And, uh, and so when you have a market that is this strangely dysfunctional, some you know, extremely odd sorts of things start to happen. Um, it... Um, and, uh, and, and you have to sort of ask questions whether there is a kind of crony capitalism racket that, uh, that, that, that starts to happen in a lot of different ways. Where, uh, you know, if, if you, if you think about the, uh, the, the immigration debates in the UK or the United States, um, there are all sorts of, you know, extremely politically correct and extremely politically incorrect arguments on immigration. But, but the sort of basic Georgist economics argument is, you know, if you add, 2%, 3% a year immigration to the UK, and the inelasticity is two to one, then, you know, London house prices will go up four to 6% a year. Um, and, um, and then this is basically <clears throat> an extremely regressive tax on the half of the population that doesn't own houses. It's an extremely regressive tax on young people. And it's basically a formula for left-wing radicalization of, of the population over time. And that's, that's what we need to be able to now analyze. And I, I would be probably open to, you know, unrestricted immigration if you could build more housing. Um, I think, you know, Elon will get to Mars before that happens in the UK. Um, um, and then if we, you know, if we, if we look at something, you know, even more prosaic, like, uh, like at Oxford, uh, one of the news items I, I was, I was reading uh, was uh, where, where I think the 
you know, it's, relative to incomes, the cost of housing is, is among the worst in the UK. And it's like a, you know, a mini London or a hyper London or so, something like that is, is Oxford. The, the uh, J.R.R. Tolkien house is for sale for 4.5 million pounds. And I would submit to you that if a, if an Oxford professor were to buy that house, uh, probably the university would be justified in starting an inquiry into where the professor got the money to do that. And, uh, and you have to, you have to sort of ask, you know, what, what are, you know, and, and then of course, if, um, you can't have single family housing, if there is no family formation possible for anybody in academia, um, you know, is it really any wonder that you get this kind of, um, nihilistic proletarianization of, of the faculty, of the students, of, of the younger generation? And, um, where if you do not solve this sort of problem, you know, um, it doesn't matter what you do with all these other debates. Uh, to use a, to use an American example, um, uh, you know, 2007, San Francisco, New York, um, you know, I thought we were at a ridiculous housing bubble. Prices were, you know, completely insane. The rents were out of control. You know, same thing in London, 2007. If you had told me, you know, We'll, we'll fast forward to 2023. The prices are going to double. I said, this is just completely impossible. How, how would this, how could this possibly happen? And you know, people would move. They'd move to a different place. And, um, and, uh, and if you had said, well, but, but just, just assume they doubled. How, how, you know, what would have happened? And I would, I'd be tempted. I don't know if I would have predicted this, but retrospectively, one might say there must have been some crazy ideology. That infested people's minds, and um, and so you know, if you're you know if you're a gay person living in Manhattan, maybe you're told that if you move to a suburb, you'll be beaten up by people with bats, and so you have to pay a gay tax and live in a big city. Or if you're a woman uh, living in a rat-infested apartment in San Francisco, and you fantasize about a nice suburban house in Reno, Nevada. Maybe, um, you will be told that, well, if you move to Reno, Nevada, you're going to be chained to your bed until you are forced to carry a baby to term. And, um, and that, that sort of all of these kinds of things would have intensified. Now, I, I don't have to, you know, so, so, you know, if we analyze wokeness in terms of real estate, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to go the full conspiracy theory. So I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not arguing that something like, Roe v. Wade being overturned was a conspiracy by um, left-wing urban slumlords in the U.S. or something like this. But um, but if you have a negative inelasticity of the sort I described with London, the kinds um, you know where this creates trillions of dollars of value that gets uh, distributed, redistributed, shifted in the sort of socially toxic way, um, isn't it even odder for us not to ask the question? Maybe not a full intentional conspiracy, but at least it's an emergent property. It's the kind of thing that we, we tolerate. Um, I will leave it as a politically incorrect exercise to you in this room to think about the craziest woke excess in the UK of the last 10 years or so. Um, <clears throat> and then, um, and then think about how it increased aggregate housing prices. In the UK, and again, not not saying it's causal, but uh, just saying that uh, maybe maybe if you could stop the housing racket, 
um, you'd, you'd start to get to the roots of, uh, of this, woke, uh, this woke disease. Now, um, now, when one moves beyond this sort of very, very stuck economy, one of the other, a second, a second big area uh, where this, this focus on um, identity politics, diversity, um, tends to focus us on all these debates within the humanities. And this is, this was also, uh, the, the direction of, of the diversity myth book. You just go through all, all these things that go wrong in the humanities and in the sort of, in the liberal arts, things like that. Um, and, you know, the, 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 the sort of idea that I've come to over the last 15, 20 years is that, uh, perhaps, um, just as broken as the humanities are the sciences, um, broadly speaking, that uh, they are not, they are no longer progressing. They are, for the most part, pretty stuck. Um, it's a harder case to make because uh, science is a harder thing to understand. Um, and, um, but, uh, you know, when I was, when I was undergraduate in the late 1980s, most of the science fields or even most of the engineering fields one could have gone into would have been the wrong fields, you know, nuclear engineering, aero engineering, terrible ideas already in the late 80s, mechanical engineering, chemical engineering, physics, chemistry, all these sort of science areas um, somehow ended up being dead end. I think electrical engineering still barely worked for a while. And then um, really the only thing that, uh, that, uh, that, that uh, had some sort of a future was, uh, was computer science, which was in the late 80s, kind of a uh, sort of a um, a field of people who couldn't handle the um, the hardness of electrical engineering or math, sort of dropped out of electrical engineering and became a, a, a computer programmer. Um, but uh, but the you know the, the the rough picture of of um, scientific technological progress I have is that you know for maybe the last 50 years we've had you know a narrow cone of progress around the world of bits computers, internet, mobile internet, software, but that the world of atoms, you know, where, which is the world we're embedded in, in some sense matters more to us as human beings, has been strangely stuck. And this, this is, you know, this is even in the word technology, which, um, you know, in some ways technology is just that, that's, that which is prog progressing. And today technology has been collapsed to IT, information technology, because it is just this world of bits. If you use the word technology in 1973, it would have meant computers, but it would also meant new medicines. It would have meant the green revolution in agriculture. It would have meant, um, you know, supersonic aviation. It would have meant space travel. Technology was advancing on many, many different fronts. And, um, and, you know, in a, in a world where, uh, this is stuck and we can't even, we're not even paying attention to it, that, that surely is, is a, uh, is a, a, a big defect. The, the sort of U.S. analogy that I've used on this is that, uh, um, you know, if, if you ask the question, you know, are the humanities or the sciences less healthy? The sort of governmental analogy would be, um, is the Department of Motor Vehicles um, better or worse run than the NSA, the National Security Agency? Or maybe the, maybe the British version would be something like uh, the post office versus GCHQ. And the, the seemingly straightforward answer is obviously the post office is not well run or the DMV is not well run in the U.S. and everybody can see it, um, just like the humanities are qu quite obviously sort of broken. But, uh, but 
But surely the, the more plausible answer is that the things you don't understand and can't see are more corrupt and that where you have, you know, these ever narrower groups of guardians guarding themselves, the string theorists guarding the string theorists, the cancer researchers telling us about how great they all are and how they're all going to have these breakthroughs in the next few years. Um, that's surely uh, the thing one should be more suspicious about. One of my, uh, one of my friends worked for, uh, was, was um, in the PhD physics program at Stanford. His advisor, Bob Laughlin, got a Nobel Prize in physics in the late 1990s. And um, uh, uh, Laughlin suffered from the supreme delusion that once he got a Nobel Prize in physics, he actually had, he finally had academic freedom and he could do whatever he wanted. And uh, he decided that he was going to investigate these, uh, um, you know, some areas in science that were truly taboo. And, uh, you know, there's obviously stuff you can't ask questions about climate change or evolution or, you know, even stem cell research is probably, you know, allowed to ask too many questions about that. But he decided to uh, go into something far more taboo than any of those things. And it was, he, he started with the premise that most of the scientists were actually just defrauding the government. They were engaged in semi-fraudulent research. Um, and uh, they were, they shouldn't, you know, he, he'd worked on high temperature superconductors. He told me once that he thought, you know, there were 50,000 papers written in that field and only about 25 of the 50,000 deserved to be published. And, um, and they started with, you know, they started with an inquest into the Stanford biology department where, uh, uh, he basically believed that most of these people had, um, you know, um, effectively stolen money from the government. And, uh, there's, there's been since then a sort of a replication crisis in science that people have made more of. But, uh, the replication of crisis, it always gets narrated in the slightly politically correct way where we don't actually mention the specific names. Laughlin side, no, I'm just going to mention the names of all the people. And here's the list of the people who are stealing money. And as you can imagine, this, uh, you, I don't even need to tell you how it ended, but he got promptly defunded. His students couldn't get PhDs anymore. And, uh, he at least got some kind of education about academic freedom from, from this process. Um, and so, so, and so I think that, uh, um, that, uh, you know, I think in a, in a debate, um, if you have an argument, there maybe are always, I think, two fundamental ways one can try to, um, make a case. And you can go after, um, your opponent, you can go after the enemy at the weakest point, uh, which is where you're most likely to score a tactical victory. Or you can go after your enemy at the strongest point. Um, um, and, uh, and if we, if we criticize the universities for the humanities, that's in some sense what, I don't know, the central left blob administrative establishment wants us to do. We can, we can occasionally win some tactical victories, but, uh, but, you know, the, the, where, where they get, you know, their sense of validation, their sense that everything is still healthy and great is the sciences. And if you can, if you can show that the sciences are more corrupt than the humanities, uh, um, it's harder to do, but if you can do that, you will win game, set, match. Um, and it's some, I, you know, I'm not, you know, it's, it's always very difficult to do this, but something like, so the way I, I would be tempted to make the argument is something like, you know, the string theorists in physics are the smartest physics people, and they've been stuck for 40 years, and, uh, and the physics people are the smartest people. And so by some principle of transitivity, if string theorists have been doing nothing, uh, therefore everybody else has been doing nothing as well. And uh, something something like that would be uh, the, the rough way, the rough way I would I would make this uh, this sort of argument. Um, now, if, if we combine these these two two big um, 
things we're being distracted from. We're being distracted from the economy, even in its most basic forms like real estate. We're being distracted from, um, from science. Um, um, you know, um, and then in some ways, things have not been healthy in the economy and science. They've not been progressing. The GDP has not been growing in a balanced way for, for quite some time. Uh, there's always a question, you know, could we, um, and, and the wokeness is distracting us from, from these things, uh, from, from going back to these things. Um, if we, if we focused on them, would we be able, would we be able to solve, you know, all of our problems? And just sort of as a, as a maybe a little bit of an aside here, I, um, I think, um, I think the, the temptation has always been to find, um, a straightforwardly economic solution to, you know, the, my, my version is that um, broadly science and tech have been stagnant for something like 50 years. And the temptation is, has been to find some kind of economic fix where we don't, because getting science and tech back on track, it does sound pretty hard. Um, and I, I think the reason we haven't been transparently stuck for 50 years is there were actually two one-time economic fixes that did not involve science and tech that were done. There was a you know, there was a right-wing Reagan-Thatcher fix in the 1980s. Um, and there was a one-time solution where you could cut taxes, deregulate, um, lo allow lots of mergers and acquisitions to happen. And you could one time gain enormous, an enormous lift for the whole economy. Um, but it doesn't continue. It, you, you can rate lower taxes from 70% marginal rates to 28% like they did in the U.S., but uh, that's a one-time lift. It worked from 1983 to 1989. And then by the late 80s, it was exhausted. And we went back to the culture war debates. They, from the 1970s, they came back in the early 90s. And then there was a one-time Clinton-Blair solution, circa 1995 to 2007, which was globalization. And uh, it, it was also a way to increase GDP. Um, it was probably um, a far more ruthless, ruthless way to do it than capitalism. Um, it created far more inequality. The Gini coefficient went up way more under Clinton than under Reagan in the United States. Um, but it also, you know, there were, there were some gains from that. Um, there probably were some long-term costs from that as well. Um, but they, they, they both, um, seem really, really hard to do. Uh, the, the pro probably there's a way in which the, uh, the center right is in a healthier place than the center left because on the center right, we, we don't, really think we can go back to, to Reaganism. On the center left, there, there still is some idea that they can go back to Clintonism or, you know, you know, going back to Thatcher in the UK seems hard. Going back to Blair seems like that maybe that's a mistake we still have to, have to make in, in, in the UK. Um, but, uh, but I think, um, but, but certainly if we, um, if we can't think about, um, the economic issues more clearly, the real estate issues more clearly, and, uh, and probably if we can't think about the science and tech issues, we don't even have, um, don't even have a hope to get back to a genuinely progressing society. Let me, um, let me say something about maybe a third category that's sort of maybe even bigger than, let's say, the economy or, you know, uh, science writ, writ large. Um, and that is, that is something like, you know, the, the biggest, you know, I don't know, the biggest possible topic that one could have would be something like God. It's something like Anselm's ontological proof is that there's nothing that you can imagine that's bigger than God. And if, and if these debates have distracted us from the economy and from uh, science, 
they probably also have distracted us from questions of religion, of God, of the Christian God. Um, and um, and uh, so that would be sort of my, my candidate for the biggest thing possible that we've been distracted from. And as with the sciences and with the economics, it also, um, it's, it's an odd thing for us to be distracted from because it is so suggestive and has so many, suggests so many different ways that this kind of uh, debate should be reframed. Um, and in, um, in particular, um, you know, I, I, I don't want to do too much on metaphysics or things like that, but maybe just focus a little bit on, on a, you know, sort of a, what, what would Christianity tell us about history? And then what does this history, you know, does that tell us something interesting about our current historical moment and, uh, some of these, uh, some of these debates that, uh, that, uh, that we, 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 we've been touching on over the last, uh, half hour here. Uh, and basically, um, the, 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 the basic thesis I would have would be that, uh, it frames a little bit provocatively would be that, uh, you know, uh, perhaps the, the original progressive was simply the Christian God. Um, you know, the New Testament supersedes the Old Testament. That's the original idea of something like progressivism in, um, in, in theology. The new is better than the old. The new transcends the old. There's some sort of progress in, in history. And, uh, and of course there, you know, there is sort of a, a Jewish or pagan critique of Christianity that, uh, those of us who are Christian need to take very seriously, which is, you know, you know, once you have this principle of the, of the New Testament superseding, the new superseding the old, is there a limit? Do you, is it, is it just a slippery slope to communism, to wokeness, to, uh, to ultra Christianity, some kind of anti-Christic parody? Um, and, uh, and if you, and if we had to concretize this even, even more, uh, you know, th there is something about, um, you know, there's, there's one sense, of course, in which, um, what, you know, what the Bible says about the founding of the first city in the history of the world is the same as what mythology tells us about the founding of the greatest city in the history of the world. It starts with madness and murder. So, uh, Cain kills Abel, Romulus kills Remus. But the difference between the biblical account and the, um, let's say the, uh, the, um, the, the conventional religious account, um, is that the conventional religions take the side of the city. It takes the side, Rome takes the side of, of Romulus. The Bible already, in, already at the beginning in Genesis takes the side of, of Abel. And there's, of course, there's, you know, some sense in which the entire biblical tradition is from the point of view of the victim. You know, the Jews, you know, the normal way this, the story of Exodus would be written would be from the point of view of the Egyptians, who are these troublemakers and they, they got removed. It'd be like the Oedipus myth where you get, you, know, you get rid of Oedipus and, or, or something like that. And, uh, and then, and then of course there is, there is something like this, um, in, um, in, in the, in, in the Christian story itself where, um, it is a sort of inversion of perspectives and this, uh, this, you know, elevation of, of victimhood, this idea that this is central, um, surely was, uh, was, was one of the, one of the key pieces of it. You know, it's, it's, I think it's sort of a, the late Nietzsche when he was, you know, when he was sort of going, going mad, sort of had this, in, it was always, you know, we need to, we need to go back to the strong classical world where, you know, the victims don't complain and, um, all this stuff is, uh, you know, 
is sort of healthy and robust. And, uh, and, uh, but he sort of had some sense this was not the way history was going. And it was sort of the, you know, sort of in, in his, towards his madness, it was sort of God of the Jews, you have won. He sort of had a sense that the, that the 20th century were about to go, you know, into overdrive on victimology and, and, and things of this sort. And, um, and if, if I had to sort of differentiate, maybe, uh, you know, if I had to ask, if I had to ask the question, how is, you know, the Christian view different from, let's say, the neo-pagan view or the, um, or the, the woke hyper, the woke ultra Christian view, something like that. The, you know, and I, I find a lot that's extremely tempting in a classical neo-pagan thing. I don't know, there's Bronze Age pervert or, you know, all these sort of online people where it's, why can't we just forget about the history and just, um, move on and, or, you know, just, um, or go back to nature where, you know, nature, nature as a word does not occur once in the Old Testament. Um, and, you know, nature, is bared red and tooth and claw, but you know, if, you, if you take your bearings from nature, if you set nature as a standard, then um, you don't. There's nothing that's really naturally evil, nothing, nothing that's naturally morally wrong, and uh, and that that is sort of always the let's say the the right wing pre-Christian neo-pagan, I don't know Nietzschean Renaissance humanism, all these different versions, uh, temptation to to sort of um, go go back to that. And then, uh, then on the, on the other side, I would say something like the, um, let's say the, uh, woke, liberal, you know, um, post-Christian, maybe ultra-Christian temptation is that we are going to be more Christian than the Christians. We are going to, we're going to, you know, um, you know, the poor shall inherit the earth and we're going to have a communist revolution and we're going to accelerate the process and we'll make it happen even faster. We're going to accelerate the history even more. Um, and there's always, you know, this, this question, is it possible to be too Christian? And I think the answer is in, in theory, no, but in practice, surely yes. Um, and that in practice, if you, you know, if you try to hit the accelerator on this, you don't end up, um, somehow, uh, um, finding a way to deal with the past, but you simply end up creating some kind of um, eternal recurrence, some kind of perpetual motion machine that generates nothing but uh, violence and never-ending cycles of revenge. It's, it is sort of a, another version of the Nietzschean eternal recurrence. Um, and so the you know the, the, the Christian the Christian perspective on this is always some paradoxical combination that yes, there was original sin, yes, in the beginning was madness and murder. Um, yes, there was incredible injustice in the past, and then you need to forgive people. And um, and if you if um, and if you go with the if you go with the neo pagan alt right whatever you want to call it version, and you say there was there was nothing bad in the past, um, uh, I, I think that somehow doesn't um, stand up against the historical pressure of Christianity against the working out of the Christian revelation in history. If you uh, um, and then if you go with the, the, the woke thing, there's, there's some sense in which it, it, it also, uh, d- doesn't work for, for, uh, for, for these opposite reasons. Um, there's, it's always hard to transpose this into these different categories, but the political categories I'm always tempted to use are something like these 20th century categories, fascism, communism, Christian democracy. And, um, and, uh, you know, there's always, Sort of debate is, you know, between fascism and communism, you know, are they, you know, are they equally bad as communism, 
is fascism worse? And, and, and there's sort of always this sort of conservative argument that they're roughly equally bad. They both killed millions of people, and they're sort of, in some ways, just uh, copies of one another. But uh, the, 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 um, this sort of perspective leads me to think that uh, we should very squarely say that something like fascism was generally much less bad than something like communism, because, um, because fascism was, was the past. And it, and it was just, okay, fascist, the fascist claim was the victims were all guilty, and it's the historical victims from the Middle Ages. We're going to go back to them, and we're going to victimize them. And then communism was sort of, it was like always like um, sort of more in the future. And it was, uh, we're going to go after the victimizers. We're going to victimize the victimizers. It was sort of too clever by half. And that, that was always the, the far more powerful, the far greater temptation in our world. And, and, uh, and, uh, and that's why, you know, even if someone like Bronze Age pervert or Ayn Rand um, is, is some, somehow wrong in their, you know, in their, in their sort of, um, whitewashing of the past, it's probably, uh, it probably is always at the end of the day, the more innocent mistake to make because we're in this, in this world where something, uh, like the, the hyper Christian, uh, wokeness, um, the, um, the, um, original sin with no hope of forgiveness is, is, is the greater temptation. Um, you know, it's, um, let me, let me end with, uh, with maybe one, uh, one thought, you know, I've given you three very big things that we've been distracted from the economy, um, science and tech broadly, um, you know, uh, the, the Christian God. But, um, but, you know, there's always a sense which you say, well, the more immediate thing is still always these political questions and we're in this political question. And so maybe, um, maybe if, if you have to have a political answer of, um, what are we being distracted from politically? Where, where is wokeness? distracting us from more important things that are immediately political. Um, I would suggest uh, maybe one way to st start is to think about uh, the etymology or the, the sort of, uh, of of the word of the term political correctness, where political correctness, um, you know, by the 1980s, it already was this conservative term that conservatives used to criticize sort of intolerant liberals. But if we go back to the 1970s, political correctness was actually a term liberals used to describe themselves where they were sort of like really, really progressive and really politically correct. And that it was a term of self-congratulation. And if you went back to the 1950s, the, the original meaning of political correctness was that it was, um, you were a politically correct comrade because you were following the orders directly from Moscow and you were following the party line of the communist party. And, um, and so if we, you know, um, if we go back to the original meaning of, of political correctness and, and, and sort of think that, you know, the real problem is something, you know, something like communism, even though it's, you know, communism, fascism in the 20th century were youth movements and we're sort of dealing with a gerontocratic version of this. So it's, so it's different demographically. It's very different, but, uh, but so something, something like ultra Christianity, communism, this, this set of things is, is the real problem today. And so it, this is a great simplification, uh, great reduction, but when you could do much worse than whenever you hear the term DEI to just think CCP. Thank you very much. Well, let's begin to um, uh, explore these um, very 
deep questions and profound thoughts that have been put before us. And I think we should recognize that they're all attempts, I think, Peter, to um, shake us out of our distraction. Uh, there were three types of distraction here. The beginning one was, the first one was the way in which debates about woke and anti-woke about culture um, very often lead us to turn our thoughts away from fundamental contradictions in economic life. And this is a way in which uh, um, Peter's way of thinking combines certain aspects without being a libertarian or a Marxist of libertarian and Marxist critiques of our current economic regime. Uh, the second was, which I found particularly fascinating, was the way in which the kind of paradigmatic contrast which many people, including I myself, have made between ethics and politics uh, as not being highly progressive and science and technology as being highly progressive, as being prototypically progressive, is not in fact substantiated by the actual evidence that sciences and technology, except in a few narrow fields, have been stuck in the same categories of thinking and the same theoretical frameworks and even the same types of technology for about 50 years. And then the third type of distraction um, that this uh, talk was trying to rid us of or shake us out of was um, a distraction in which um, uh, questions of religion or of theology or of um, not exactly metaphysics, but of the way we ultimately think about good and evil and how human beings are in the world, have been pushed on one side, and yet they continually reappear with woke, not actually being at all, as some people have said on the right, a repaganization of the world, but as being a type of hyper-Christianity emptied of transcendence and forgiveness. And that leads to I guess the question, my question for, uh, to you, Peter, is, um, um, is there some way out of this? Because in a way, I thought one of the things you said, which was most interesting was uh, the attempt to, in the 20th century, in fascism and other types of thinking, or now in interesting writers uh, uh, like Bronze Age Pervert or earlier on Ayn Rand, what they were doing was, I would think in your terms, Peter, it was actually very interesting, but impossible because you can't, is, would you think this is true? You can't actually get back to a classical or pre-Christian view of the world in which energy and vitality and power are what matters and victimhood is contemptible or unimportant once Christianity is there. So we can't go back. And that's true of the other, the previous two. We can't go back to earlier forms of science. We can't go back to earlier forms of economic thinking. Although I thought what you said about Henry George was very interesting. Are we really stuck? Can we actually... Can you actually, is it possible to unstick us? I think it is because I think you're already unsticking us tonight. Where would you think that there's the best chance of unsticking us? Well, uh, man, uh, it's, it's, uh, well, my, my very facile answer is always the first thing you have to, you have to, um, do to solve problems is to talk about them. So I, I think that as long as we have this, uh, as you described, Groundhog Day of wokeness, um, we are, we are, uh, we are not we're not going to be unstuck and um, we're going to be in this sort of, you know, zero sum, you know, somewhat Malthusian, er ever nastier political uh, kind, kind of a context. Um, I, yeah, I, I think there are, there certainly are ways 
there, there probably are ways all three of them could um, could could be, you know, ways we could we could get unstuck in all three dimensions. You know, I, I think there's some way that that the pure capitalism, pure globalism uh, things probably don't quite work in economics. I, I I I do think one could probably do something about the real estate mm. problem. It is it's it's so extraordinarily distorted, mm. and uh, and so that's that that uh, there probably are are things one can do. It's it's very hard because you would destroy trillions of dollars in in value in in doing it. Um, but uh, but uh, but that that's that that probably you know it, it has to give at some point. Maybe it's a technological fix. You know the way the way the Henry George thing was. Was historically solved was you know you had an open frontier in America and then the frontier closed in the late nineteenth uh, century so the railroads were the technology to open the frontier eventually the frontier is populated it's closed and then late nineteenth early twentieth century the cities start to have this Georgist runaway real estate price effect rising inequality and you get progressivism as a as a response to the closing of the frontier and then in the twentieth century in a way another frontier got Opened with the automobile and the highways and the suburbs, and that uh, that uh, that relieved the pressure on on uh, the the runaway costs. And then that that technology has also run its course. And there's a question: Is there some way to reopen a frontier in in real estate? And and probably you know the one where I think the jury is very out and doesn't look that promising in 2023. But it would be something like: Could one really get remote work to work? Could could the internet be a way? Uh, that people are not stuck in these cities, and uh, that would reset all these real estate values tremendously. Because even in a rather densely populated country like England, there is plenty of space if you're not forced to be in you know, within the green belt of London itself, mm. um, and and certainly uh, the United States even more so. So, um, um, and then then I think within the you know, within the technology area, my 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 hopeful sense is that. Uh, there is, you know, there's always a question, you know, what, why did the technology slow down and uh, the science slow down? And uh, the thing I'm hopeful on is that it was not that we just ran out of ideas. It's, it's that there were these deformations of culture. We became too risk averse, too bureaucratic, too much peer review in the sciences. And, uh, um, and I, think, I think we could be making a lot more progress in a lot of areas. Uh, it's, you know, it's regulated. People are scared of technology. Uh, we we don't want to minimize or trivialize their fears, but uh, but I I, th I think uh, you could have a very different balance there, and then yeah and then, and then certainly the questions about the larger meaning of life or the meaning of history um, are you know are ones that I, I think um, we would all do well to to confront more. Hmm. Um, to take in a way what might be the most immediate uh, um, part of what you've just said and said before. I guess it implies, which I think is absolutely true, that the so-called consensus that prevails between, say, Sunak and Starmer is far more consensus on what we're not supposed to think about than it is on anything positive. Because the big problems you mentioned, the problems of stagnation in science, the problems of real estate in London and in Oxford and throughout the country, the problems of generational inequity in which young people can't find any way to live and, and so they're all hardly addressed at all. There's a bit of commentary in the newspapers and so on, but in terms of thinking about active solutions, there perhaps maybe some dim subliminal awareness among these politicians that the solving them would involve big losses for somebody. 
uh, yes, are certainly big losses for them in the election, is, 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 is the felt sense. And, uh, and so, uh, yeah, and, and it's not certainly not limited to the UK, but uh, cer certainly an outside perspective, I would have it, it seems to me that, yeah, uh, there's a secret agreement between Sunak and Starmer, let's say, mm. to, um, to um, um, talk as much as possible about culture wars, take various sides on those issues. And, um, and then if you, if you have even, even basic economic questions like uh, runaway deficit spending, and do you solve this with higher taxes or lower entitlements? Um, and then, and then they both have a look ahead function where if we, if we talk about that, we'll, we'll lose 10 or 15% of the voters. Um, I mean, maybe, maybe not quite as many for Sunak since at some point it's hard to lose 10 or 15% of the voters, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, there's some, there's some kind of a, you know, some kind of a look ahead function where, um, um, we, we shouldn't touch that, but then, you know, uh, then when, when everybody does that, whenever, uh, you know, when all the solutions are outside the Overton window, um, you know, we end up with, yeah, we're, we're, we're confined in, in this very narrow box and, um, and the Groundhog Day will continue until at some point something really breaks. So there won't be a Nietzschean Groundhog Day. It won't really be eternal. <laughs> it's going to break down, isn't it? I mean, it's one way or the other, even if only for economic reasons, but we don't know when or how. Sure, uh, sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I think there, are, there certainly are all kinds of dimensions one could, one could point to where, where it is, you know, it is not simply stable. Mm. You know, the demographics are not stable. The deficits are not stable. We had pseudo stability in deficits for 40 years in the United States and much of the Western world where the, the deficits were too big, but the interest rates went steadily down. And something around that seems to have broken in the last year or two. So I think even something as basic as um, deficits financed at 0% interest rates, um, it seemed like the 2010s could go on forever. And that seems over. And they haven't. And they, yeah, ended with the 2020s. Yeah, yeah. Is there also, does that bleed back into, though, the um, uh, segue back into the cultural and the religious um, uh, questions you discussed? Because I guess part of the resistance to your analysis of science is a kind of quasi-religious uh, conception of the salvific possibilities of science, that science can uh, do what religion hasn't done, uh, which is to actually change worldly life in a way which rids it of its deepest contradictions. And I guess if, for some people, um, uh, if they gave up that faith in science, if I can use that obvious, they would be left with nihilism or left with despair or left with unbearable anxiety. Yeah, although it's, it's, it's sort of a, yeah, obviously there's a very complicated history yeah. of science and it was in some ways maybe a byproduct of Christianity, in some yeah. ways it was an opposition to Christianity. Um, and, and, and certainly in its, in its healthy, ambitious, early modern forms, um, whether it was a substitute or a complement to Christianity, um, um, it, uh, it was supposed to be, um, it was somehow supposed to be a vehicle for mm. comparable transformation and sort of the indefinite prolongation of human life. Mm. Um, was an early modern science project, and people yes. still believe very much in the 17th, 18th century. I think there was a you know sub um, movement within um, sort of the 
revolutionary Soviet politics uh, it was still very healthy in the 1920s called Cosmism. Yes. Where um, um, a, a part of the project of the, of the revolution had to be to physically resurrect all dead human beings. Yes. Um, and because if science didn't do that, it would be inferior to Christianity or I something like that. That's sort of the... One of their slogans, they had to adapt themselves, the cosmos, to the Soviet and Bolshevik reality was, dead of the world unite. <laughs> because they wanted to bring back not only not only that everyone in the present generation would live forever, but that all the people who'd ever died would come back. And so, so there there is um, this this let's say anti-Christian or derivative from Christian, you know, a very ambitious version of science. And of course, there is a there is a also a more defeatist version of science where science actually just tells us about limits and things you cannot do. Uh, when I, I don't know when um, use a literary example when when um, Hamlet's evil mother Gertrude says that all that lives must die. Mm. Um, you know the the question you have is is that a law of nature, mm. or or is this just a rationalization for the rottenness that is Denmark? Mm -hmm. And certainly the early modern conception was that uh, you wanted to transcend this both in a Christian or a scientific form, mm -hmm. and then yeah late modernity it's probably a I attribute more as a decay of science that this sort of ambition is is more a fringe science thing than a mainstream science thing. And I guess there's also a kind of um, nihilistic version of science in which a, a sort of um, brave new world version in which sees itself as um, pacifying the spiritual and mental anguish and doubts of human beings by giving them access to drugs and pornography and all kinds of things which distract them forever from these fundamental existential questions, the religious questions. I mean, what would work to exterminate religion wouldn't be, uh, or exterminate the need for religion wouldn't be persecuting it. That obviously has never worked. But to try and put everyone asleep with dreams of um, drug dreams, drug highs, and, um, and of course, drugs are a tremendous feature of our life, of life at the moment, aren't they, in many countries? Yeah, I, I wouldn't even go... That, that, that far, you know, the, the, the line I, I always use in this is just, you know, the, the iPhones that distract you from your environment also yes. distract you from the fact you're in a hundred-year-old subway in London or New York yes. or the, Very, the environment hasn't changed. Yes. And, uh, and then I, again, I, I don't think one should make it fully intentional, but there's, you know, there is, there is something about certain narrow forms of mm. uh, technical progress mm. uh, that have more of this uh, retarding effect else, elsewhere or this, um, you know, making us oblivious to what's what's going on effect um and uh and but yeah I, I think i think most of it is not it's it's not supposed to be ambitious world transforming mm. um it, it it is not at all early modern science it's much more i don't know you know probably the you know probably the, the strongest um science and one of the stronger science and politics themes is always the the climate you know the climate change debate and there's um if you take climate change seriously there are all kinds of progressive science things one could do. You could be pushing for the construction of hundreds of new nuclear reactors. Yes. You could be pushing for fusion. There's sort of all kinds of ways that you could be concerned about climate um, change and lean into uh, rapidly progressing science. And then, um, and then in practice, it's, uh, it's, it's much more that, you know, maybe you should just ride a bicycle or, or, or something like that. And so it's, uh, it's it, somehow uh, a lot of science has this Luddite feel, even though it's obviously, you, you can find lots of different things. Or start eating insects rather than, rather than um, beef, because beef, uh, but one, I mean, that thought, it, um, that uh, the function of, one of the functions of 
smartphones is to distract us from the fact that we're living in a Victorian environment still, with Victorian sewers and Victorian uh, subways and vic Victorian buildings, uh, is, a, I think, a, a very profound word, a, a thought, because it, it suggests that one of the functions of technology, which is something that affects the material world, is to supplant the material world in our own lives so that we live in a virtual world more and more of the time. Of course, it's got physical roots, this, this virtual world. So if something goes wrong with the physical roots, if there is war or terrorism or climate change or whatever, then it's all dis it's disrupted. But that, that's part of the way it works, isn't it? Uh, well, cer certainly um, that's the, the, the part of technology that's been healthiest, has been, has been still the most progressive is this narrow cone around you know, yeah. this, this virtual world. Um, I keep thinking that you could do a lot more mm. in these other areas. If I, um, again, come back to something like the, the real estate housing mm. version, this, this seems the, the, the furthest from technological innovation. Mm. Even though, you know, there are, I mean, there are new building designs. You can build 100-story buildings that you could not build 20, 30 years ago. Um, there, there are presumably you know, some new things one could even do there. But if too much of the economy mm. is anchored on things that are hard to improve or change. That is also a way in which um, progress slows. So if, if, if we have an economy in the UK, and I'll, I'll make these numbers up where it's 50% real estate and 10% uh, computers, um, then even if the 10% that is computers is somehow getting better and better, if 50% uh, that is real estate is very stuck, um, that is going to be at best a, um, a slowly improving economy. And then you know, the, the most important thing is somehow not going to be changing it. And then that probably creates all kinds of weird side effects and incentives. So the hyper-progressivism, the hyper-accelerationism that we are told we, we have that, that, that by politicians and others, by Blair, for example, that uh, uh, we're accelerating in... Uh, well, it, doesn't, it, doesn't show, it does not show up in the, in the per capita GDP numbers. It does not show up in um, incomes rising faster than rents. Yes. So I, I just think the, the rebuttal is simply on the real estate side. Yes, that. yes. And then you, know, and then you, can, you can be told that people don't want to live in houses anymore. They don't want to have families. They're, they're conscious. You, know, you shouldn't have children because you should just be eating insects. But, um, but, then, uh, so we, but at some point, uh, again, at some point, this is, not, this is really a parody, not, not really progressivism. I didn't attend it, but there was a meeting in um, London of Blair and some of his disciples in many parties, including the Conservative Party, in which, for him, the next phase of acceleration was precisely the one in which your analysis suggests there's been uh, the most the most the largest and most neglected stagnation in technology, which is that all the globalization might not have gone far enough. He's saying we've retreated from it. We shouldn't do it, but we have. And when I, it's going to still going to go on, but we're going to try. We're resisting it. So how can we cope with the situation in which we're not uh, getting enough acceleration from globalization? Where we'll accelerate the technological side. And yet, if what is accelerating, if what's it's, it's going to be AI and the virtual world, I guess, he thinks that we can solve our problems in medical care by AI. That's the solution for him. Look, it's always it's always dangerous for me to comment on too much on British politics, mm. but I, 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 my, 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 my sense is that uh, Blair occupies this very, very strange place mm. where it is, it is this past. It obviously does not work. <laughs> we obviously cannot go back yes. to the sort of globalization that mm. he represented mm. or doing more of it in some sense doesn't work, but it never gets articulated. Mm. And, and so it has a very different uh, quality than, let's say, Thatcherism, mm. where there's, you know, and again, 
Um, I'm, I'm, I was in some ways very sympathetic to Liz Truss, but uh, there's some sense in which it didn't work. And somehow it's, it's, it's clear that we somehow can't go back to Thatcherism mm. uh, or doing more of Thatcherism mm. isn't going to be a solution. Uh, and then, whereas on the left, um, it's, it's in this very strange in-between zone where um, somehow Blair is not being run as a candidate for prime minister. Mm. Uh, officially. If, if he, well, if he, ran, but again, I'm just going, if he ran officially. Yeah. One suspects it would work very badly. Yes. But then, um, but then, you know, if you're someone like Starmer, you know, um, what labor leader do you um, do you want to emulate? Do you want to emulate Attlee, which I, probably is not that 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 doesn't work. And then maybe Blair is the only other one on offer. And so mm. that's sort of the default idea, even though it never gets articulated, which tells you it's probably not very good. Absolutely. I mean, I guess the difference is that when the, this trust wing of the Conservative Party wants to go back to Thatcher. It's because they see that as a radical moment and they want to repeat the radical moments. But of course, radical moments are very hard to keep repeating all the time. Well, they're, they're, hard, they're, hard, they're hard to repeat by doing the same thing. Doing the same thing. Right. So yes. it's, 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 it's certainly, there was a one-time move to deregulate and lower taxes. Mm. Um, and, and then um, not clear one can do, doing it the second time does as much good. Mm. Um, you know, McKinsey. McKinsey was a real thing in 1985 in the United States. If you ha if you hired a consultant, they actually helped you improve your company. You know, because the companies were badly run. At this point, McKinsey is a total racket. It's just all fake. Yeah. And um, and so if we if we if if if, if, if you have a Reagan, you know, if you have a, you know, and the 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 Reagan Thatcher administrations, they empowered McKinsey because they allowed more companies to be acquired and more M and A activity to happen. And it was a you know a, a somewhat brutal, but uh, very powerful reorganization of society. And that was possible, and that was the right thing to do in the 1980s. Um, you know, at this point, um, McKinsey's not ever going to be anything other than a super corrupt fake racket in, in 2023. And so we can't go back to that specific thing, you know. It's fascinating the way in which the product of these revolutionary changes in the economy and uh, society and thinking produces a, a proliferation of rackets in science too. And I guess that's connected with... Um, fakery, fakery. That's to say, so many of the phenomena around us are fakery. I, I, I don't know if it. I don't know if it has to happen that way. But um, um, one, one of my um, one of my colleagues. Maybe, maybe this would be another way to to link the um, the sciences to the the wokeness problem. But um, um, is that institutions um, as a term? Institutions have embedded growth obligations, egos. Uh, in short, EGO, embedded growth obligations. <laughs> and, um, and so a, a healthy institution in some sense is one that has this exponential growth. And if you have exponential growth, there will be more jobs and everyone can get promoted. And there's sort of a way that if a company has exponential growth, that's a healthy company. And there are other versions of this in, in, in different forms. And then um, at some point, maybe the growth stops. Mm -hmm. and, um, and when the growth stops, um, you have a choice. You can you can maybe become more honest and say, well, you know, um, the university isn't growing anymore. There'll be very few faculty slots available. If you if you're in a PhD program, we're gonna um, we're gonna um, we're gonna um, make sure that 80% of the students uh, uh, drop out of the program within six months, so they don't waste their time. Um, and uh, we're, we're gonna be honest about the fact that there's no growth. Um, or um, the the thing that I think unfortunately happens a great deal is you just lie, mm. and the uh, and the institutions become sociopathic. 
where they pretend that the growth is still going on. And then it's only years and years later that people figure out that, uh, that um, there are no jobs and it doesn't, and, and, the, and, you know, the wokeness was just, you know, it's just a distraction. It's sort of like, uh, you know, if you have nine, if you have 10 graduate students in a chemistry program and there's a job for only one of them and you're having fist fights over beakers and Bunsen burners and, um, and you're in this sort of Malthusian struggle and there's one person who says something slightly racist or so slightly inappropriate. I mean, it's such a relief. You can throw that one person off the overcrowded <laughs> bus, right? But, uh, but, uh, but again, I, uh, so these are, these are natural things to happen, but, but, but surely um, we would do better to, um, to find ways to, to get back to, to growth in as many places of our society as possible. Indeed, because what you just said is um, that the solution to non-growth is persecution. Um, you can eliminate various people from, from the competition by uh, um, cancelling them, pushing them out. They're not, they're, they're not there anymore. They're what was termed in the first constitution of the Soviet Union back, I think, in 1918, 1919, former persons. Former person. So if you make these people former persons, at least they're not competitors anymore, they're out. So but that's a very, again, a very interesting thing because unless we grow in certain ways in knowledge and technology in a genuine way, we're going to have this persecutory mentality. This person, it has a function, it has a role, even an economic or a career structure role and so on. Yeah, but, but it's, but it's always important to um, understand the persecution is not as ideological as it's dressed up. No. So, um, because, um, if it's actually driven by scarcity, you will just have scarcity. The, uh, the, the, the U.S. academic version of this, you know, when I, when I wrote the diversity myth book in the, mm. in the early nineties, I was thinking to myself, you know, academia discriminates against conservatives, libertarians like myself. Mm. And, um, I think that was true for one cohort yes, yeah. of, of uh, baby boomer academics who got PhDs in the seventies and couldn't get tenure in the eighties in the U.S. Mm. But by my generation, uh, where I would have gotten a PhD in the 1990s, it was obvious there was no job because I was conservative. And so um, the conservatives were actually not discriminated against. It was the liberals that were discriminated against who mm. were Gen X, millennial, um, mm. because they all had the delusion mm. that um, it was, yeah, it was kind of zero sum, but as long as you towed the correct party line, yes. you were safe. And that was, of course, also the delusion that the, uh, the party line communists had when, the, when they were disproportionately targeted by the Stalin show trials in the 1930s. Mm. Um, the Soviet term for it was always uh, Section 58 of the Soviet Penal Code was that you were guilty of counter-revolutionary activity. Mm. And uh, I think the key to understanding that was that uh, everybody was guilty. Mm. And there were just some people who were not being prosecuted for the time being by the government. And, uh, and so in, in this world of extreme scarcity, mm. you know, eventually everybody gets, um, gets somehow deplatformed or ejected or, or, or something like that. Uh, ju just about. I mean, the Soviet analogies are very rich, I think. There was another Soviet term which was telling lies that no one believes in. And that was seen as an essential thing because one of the things, if you're surrounded by lies and every single person, including the people who tell them, know that they're lies, know that it's not the truth, then it sort of hinges you to some extent and it makes you scared. And also because the party line, what determines what's a lie and what's a lie, changes inexplicably all the time. And I think in a way we've progressed beyond the Soviets now in that respect, because we've really got to the point where no one really knows what the party line is, but everyone's terrified from deviating from it. Uh, it's the postmodern version of the party. Of, 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 of well, again, I, yeah. you know, I, yeah, I, th I think, I think it's, it's, very, it's always so hard to know exactly what's going on. We're in this yeah, strange yeah. postmodern world. It's, 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 it's probably, um, I, I think, People are um, 
generally quite cynical. They don't don't believe all the lies they're being told. It gets discounted pretty heavily. Um, but nevertheless, it has this effect where somehow um, we can't focus on the really important yes. things that are going on uh, of this of the sort that I that I talked about. And so it does have this, and I, I'll come back to this metaphor that it is like this hypnotic magic, mm-hmm. magic trick. And, um, and, and, and the, the important thing is not what the magician is doing, but what the magician is distracting us from. Mm. And maybe even the magician is taken in by the sleight of hand. <laughs> maybe it's easier to, uh, um, live with oneself as a magician, a political magician, a technological magician, uh, if you really think there's something in it, although you can never quite see what it is, because the trick is almost bigger than you. There's a, well, there's a whole division among uh, magicians between the ones, uh, there's a class that claim that it's real and there's a class that claim that it's fake. And mm. so, uh, so yes, that is, uh, that, that is, I, I believe the sociology of magicians is there are those two competing camps. Mm. How, how far is the, does social science fit into this? Um, there was a wonderful book about 70 years ago by, uh, not 70 years ago, in the 70s, 1970s, by the sociologist, Polish sociologist I knew. It was a marvelous book in every way, but the very best part of it was that it was called Social Sciences as Sorcery in 1970s. And he was arguing that the whole 80 or 90, not that there's no social science or that there can't be, didn't think that. He thought that there was and there could be more of it, but that much of it was just, um, um, the kind of magical transposition of terms, uh, forms of distraction from real problems um, uh, that you're talking about, that actually a lot of it was, um, it was theorized and systematized distraction. So if you talk about uh, um, identity struggles, you're missing out very profound structural inequalities, economic and which are, which are coming, that's an obvious example. He took examples of plagues, uh, 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 and, and even of syphilis in which people talked about in all sorts of complex ways of power structures. But the basic thing is the thing itself, the material thing. So it's a way of avoiding contact with the material world, isn't it? Yeah, I, I wouldn't, it, it feels like that's slightly too strong since I, mm. I think I gave, I'm not sure it was, a, I wouldn't want to call it a social science speech today, but uh, uh, some kind of, um, some kind of attempt to analyze these things in terms of mm. um, the history, politics, uh, Sociology, psychology of our of our of our societies. But yes, I think I think a lot of these soft feels mm. do have this quality that um, they are they are. I, I want to say that they are in theory extremely important, and there's mm. something about them that is uh, an extremely important way at at, uh, at getting at things. And then for that reason, they are also extremely prone to to politicization of, of various sorts. Uh, you know, one of one of the things I always like to say is that. Any field that has the term science in it um, should always be suspicious of because it's it's, it's sort of um, it's um, it's exaggerating. It's so social science, political science, mm. climate science, mm. even even computer science. Mm. Uh, you know, it's, it started as computer science because it had a very serious inferiority complex to to math and electrical engineering. And it's not, I think, accidental, and though it's often forgotten that both of the great terrible movements of the 20th century, communism and Nazism, actually, which is often seen as anti-scientific, but was in fact often defended in the 30s and 20s and then 40s by biological or racial science, just as dialectical materialism, diamat, as it was called then, was was the greatest science that ever been. So so these repressive movements, uh, murderous movements, movements which killed millions of people, but also killed off thought wherever they could, 
all advanced. They all thought it very important to call themselves science. Well, it's it's a uh, I, I don't know. This is maybe sort of a philosophy of science thought I have that mm. is that. Uh, um, I think, you know, in theory, what science is supposed to do is fight a two-front war against excessive dogmatism and excessive skepticism. Mm-hmm. And if you're, and, 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 and so, um, excessive dogmatism is like, I know, the de- decayed Aristotelianism of the medieval church. And that was what, uh, science was in some ways fighting in the 17th and 18th century. And then excessive skepticism. If, um, I can't trust my senses and I don't know whether I'm sitting in front of you. If you're too skeptical, you also can't do. Mm-hmm. Science and then these these two this two front wars in tension. It's it's hard. It's actually mm. hard to get that balance. Uh, mm. It's very hard to get that balance right. Probably the early modern version, I would say, was more anti dogmatism mm. than anti skepticism. Um, if we fast forward to twenty twenty three, and we uh, um, there are all kinds of things where um, I know the scientific establishment, the uh, the leading scientists would caution us against being too skeptical. Mm. We're not supposed to be vaccine skeptics. We're not supposed to be climate science skeptics. We're not supposed to, you know, it's, it's, it's fighting skepticism mm. in all its forms. Mm. And then, um, you know, I, I, I'd be hard pressed. I could maybe, if you, if you held a gun to my head, I might be able to come up with one or two things, but I'd be very hard pressed to come up with a single instance where a scientist would say, this is an area where science is too dogmatic today mm. in 2023. Uh, the string theorists wouldn't say we're too dogmatic about string theory, mm. you know, uh, but you know, it, it just uh, very, very hard pressed to say where it's too dogmatic, and that surely tells us that um, somehow it has degenerated into uh, into into something that's um, you know more dogmatic than the medieval church. It's, oh. If you're f- just fighting skepticism, it tells you you're a dogma. And that's probably probably there was some mm. some version of this with. Uh, Mm. With the um, totalitarian science mm. of the early 20th century, where mm. it um, it uh, leveraged the term, mm. and so it was somehow still pretending to be anti-dogmatism, anti-supernatural, mm. anti that, that sort of stuff. But uh, but in reality, um, um, the uh, the anti-skepticism dominated. Which which leaves us to in a situation with the, with the near impossibility of empiricism, in the sense of a way of thinking which tries to connect with facts in the world. So if you say, well, actually, racism in certain contexts is less prevalent than these claims which have been made suggest, someone will say, that's you think that because you're a racist. You're neglecting the systematic, structural, hidden subterranean patterns, the occult patterns of, of racism, so to speak, which are there. So, um, and this, by the way, strikes me as a feature of liberal thought in even in its attempt to prescribe solutions, which is that if some if a, if a liberal experiment doesn't work, say the liberal experiments in drug legalization or drug decriminalization, the solution is not to say they've been falsified. It's to say double up, triple up, quadruple up, do it three or four times, and then it will work. Uh, so can we get, I mean, I wouldn't say get back to empirical thinking because I guess science was never that closely empirical, but closer to it than we've been, in which someone will accept that um, we are too dogmatic about X, Y, Z, that maybe we don't know the answer, maybe we've actually got to go out and check things to see what's happening. Well, I, you know, there's empirical thinking, there's analytical thinking. I, mm. I, I would like us just to get back to, to thinking. You know, <laughs> the hardest of all. We, we just, we just try, try to do that. <laughs>